going to be turning to Romans chapter 9. We'll begin there in just a few minutes before we get started or before we get to scripture. Uh, we'll have a few introductory comments, but we're going to begin in Romans chapter 9 as we try to lay a foundation continuing in what we talked about this morning, but trying to lay a foundation for ourselves as we think about the world that we interact in. Of course, as we think about sermons and think about lesson ideas, we're always trying to uh, think about things that are we're being involved in in the world, things that are going on around us, questions that people have, uh, ways that we can try to be helpful to friends and to family uh, who have questions. Um, if you if you got questions about this during Thanksgiving, I'm sorry, I'm about three days too late, but uh, maybe you did or didn't. Uh, but hopefully, as you have other friends or family, as the holiday season comes around, who maybe want to talk about these things, uh, we hope to give you some idea of what the Bible has to say about what's taking place in the Middle East. Uh, I hope that today has been helpful, at least this morning. Certainly, I appreciate the compliments uh, that you gave and, and hope that it was. I'm trying to hit the sweet spot of the fact that this is pretty simplistic in some ways. Uh, there's some ways in which we, we could say, you know, cut and dry, this is it in about 30 seconds and sit down. Or we could have about a, a nine-week study, even as I said this morning, scholarly study on words and Greek words and Hebrew words and all this history not even all the way back to 1948, uh, which many of you may know is the, the time that the United States and Israel sort of entered into this, this relationship politically, but even further back than that. We could spend a lot of time. I mentioned that I tried to consume a lot of uh, things that I could find, and I'd be willing to pass any of that on to you. A lot of it was sermons of friends and other preachers that I know, and some said, well, you know, I listened to this person, and then I was listening to them, and we just kind of keep passing on. I did find it interesting that uh, Wesley Hazel that preaches uh, down in Valdosta, Georgia, I was listening to his, one of his lessons, and he is in the middle of a series. He's doing at least four, I think, if not five Sunday nights on this topic. He's talking about the Battle of Armageddon. He's talking about Israel, talking about all these things. And I already had one person today said, you ought to talk about the rapture. I said, oh, that'll be real easy. Let's just talk about the rapture. Uh, but as you know, and I, and I appreciate the laughter because I'm trying to be a little facetious that these are difficult topics and there's a lot of confusion. And so it is kind of hard to hit the sweet spot between telling somebody, well, that's not what the Bible says. And then you don't even know where to go from there. Or going into, well, let's open a Bible and look at the 35 to 45 verses that all talk about this and trying to have this, this deep discussion. But I was going to say that in Wesley's lesson, one of his introductions, he shared a book that was written by Guy in Woods that talked about the a background of the, the troubled history of the Middle East or something like that. I messed it up a little bit there. But the background of the troubled history of the Middle East, written by Guy in Woods, published by the Gospel Advocate, in the 1990s, a title that said Trouble in the Middle East in the 1990s. We're not dealing with something that's not been around, that people have not been talking about for a long time. And as I said this morning in my disclaimer, I'm not a political uh, person or expert, and I do not claim to have all the answers in this. And as I said again, trying to find between just, well, here's the very short and sweet version, here's the, the more detailed version, what can we find that will be helpful to us? We have tried to focus a little bit on this idea of Israel today. I hope that you understand as well that this was not meant, this is the slide we opened up with this morning as well, that's not meant in jest or to make fun of anybody. We're going to get there in just a second, but I think we should pray for peace for Israel, absolutely, for that, the things that are going on over there. It's horrible. One reason that I don't know all the details I told you this morning is because the little bit I've heard make me sick to my stomach, right? To think about the, the bloodshed and the killing, and we won't go any further. That's been taking place over there as we see it on the news. So we should 
pray for peace. And Israel has a place in history. Uh, the nation of Israel has had a place in history, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about uh, this afternoon. Uh, real quick again, this morning, uh, you know, I was looking through my notes that I'd been compiling during the week, and one of the things I didn't say this morning, I kind of said in general, people talk about Matthew 24 and the things that are taking place in Israel. I found where I'd written down, here are some things that people do say where they get Matthew 24 a little twisted. One is, is that Israel will be regathered and restored to their homeland, in their homeland. That's why that strip of land is very important to so many people. A second thing is that the Jews are the physical descendants of Israel, and they will, as a nation, turn to Christ. That's something that's supposed to take place. A third thing is that God is not finished with the Jews, nor with the land he gave them. That's another thing that people sometimes say. And then fourth, that restored Israel, this restored, regathered, restored nation of Israel, will inherit the land that God gave to Abraham, which again, that little strip of land that's not very wide, uh, is so important and people are, are fighting over it. Those are things uh, that people say. I don't know how many conversations you've had about this recently, uh, but the title that I came up with that I hope is helpful is what can I tell my friends? What can I say to people as we talk about this at the water cooler or at school or wherever it may be? Uh, some responses that we can give this afternoon. Number one, uh, war is bad. War is bad and should be condemned. There's no doubt about that. When I say uh, pray for peace, and I kind of use that slide saying that, that a lot of people are saying that, I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to, to make fun or to say anybody's wrong. We should absolutely pray for peace. What we're not saying in both the lesson this morning and this afternoon is that we don't care. Well, you know what? That's not God's chosen people anymore, so it doesn't matter. We don't care. No, that's not true at all. Any more than it is the atrocities of Germany uh, years ago, any more than it is what's taking place in other areas in the Middle East, with terrorists and things, or in our own country, we should not be praying for people to be destroyed or for them to suffer. We should condemn war and say that it's something that should be avoided, although at times certainly we have entered into conflicts for, for various reasons, but as much as we can, it should be something that is to be avoided. We should pray for peace. In fact, one of the lessons that I was listening to was our brother David Smith of course, up the road at North Hamilton, he had done one a month or so ago, kind of when this first started, and he mentioned Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I ask you to turn there, and one of his points was, as God's people today, as us, as God's people, we should be praying for the Jews to be saved. For people who claim to be Jewish but have rejected Christ, we should care for their souls. We should pray for peace. We should condemn the war that is taking, li taking lives. Look at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, and let me tell you, this is, somebody said, this, there is not a more tender passage in Scripture when it comes from Paul's pen than this right here. Try to read and hear the emotion in it. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. You ever said that? I promise, I'm telling the truth. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul is almost again with tears saying, that I, I, would, I pray for them, I grieve for them. 
Have you ever noticed here, can, did you hear what Paul said in verse number two, or excuse me, verse number three? He says, I wish I could be condemned and they could be saved. How many of us would say that? Probably not many, right? I stand before the judgment seat of Christ. My wife stands for the judgment seat of Christ for herself, my kids will, and I don't want them to be condemned, but I also can't do anything about it. But he says, I feel so strongly about the nation of Israel and, and my brethren, the Israelites, that I wish I could be condemned for their sake so that they might be saved. You know, people are concerned with our alliance with Israel. They're concerned about the billions of dollars that we send over there in, in, in aid. And, and that's part of this discussion sometimes as well. And again, not a political expert. We send aid to a lot of places. Some we might agree with, some we might disagree with. I don't know, but, but you know, it's always been a thing. Well, we're going to support Israel. Israel is God's people. Despite the politics, we should care about the souls that are in the Middle East, the nation of Israel. We should care about the war that is going on there right now and pray that it would be resolved, pray for safety, pray for the women and children. We should pray for all of those things. Paul is talking about the Jews here. He says that in verse number 3 and even verse 4, who are Israelites? Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the Israelites. you know what they, they had done? Israelites had done some pretty bad things to Paul, hadn't they? I mean, do you want to go through the list? We don't have time this afternoon to go through the list, he says. When he's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, he's been all these things, put in prison. They were pretty bad to him. But what does he say? Still, he says, I wish I could be cursed for their sake. And you know what's interesting is, somebody would read what Paul's about to say, right? We didn't go further. We stopped at verse 5. But as he goes further through chapters 9, 10, and 11... This is one, I know Clayton already gave you some homework this morning, but I'm going to give you some more. This is one, you can go home and read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and this is where he's talking about the Israelites and their issues. If, if that is said today, what are most people going to say? Well, that's anti-Semitic. He ought to be jailed for hate speech because he's anti-Semitic in what he's saying. Paul's not anti-Semitic. He cares about them more than anyone, but he's got the same problem as us. Read those verses 1 through 5 again. Look over at chapter 10 in verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He's not anti-Semitic when he tells them they're wrong because he's also reminding them, I love you and I want the best for you. Friends, this is the problem we have today with a host of other things, right? When a preacher stands up and says homosexuality is wrong, he's accused of hate speech and all these things. The truth is, try to be like Paul. No, I love you and I want the best for your soul, but according to what God has said, not according to what you think or feel. The same thing is true here. That's not hate speech when we say homosexuality is wrong. We're simply trying to stand upon the truth of the word of God. When Paul says those who claim to be Israelites and Jews and deny Christ, he's saying they're wrong. He's not being anti-Semitic. He's calling them out of love because he cares for their souls. As Christians today... One response we should have, and maybe the first, is that, no, the war is not good. And it should be condemned in a sense that they should do, we should do our best to try to support those things being stopped and, and no more killing. And then we'll get into this other stuff, as Paul kind of does as well. One other point here before we get into the Bible, um, passages about Israel just a little bit. Uh, yes, this land area was important in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles handy, let's go to a few Old Testament passages I know some of you are writing this down, but you can be turning to Judges 1. I'll put the first one up here in just a second. 
Judges chapter 1. You can be turning to Judges chapter 1. Uh, we're not, again, we're not trying to deny that this was not an important area of land that is discussed in the Bible. This is, has some history to it, although maybe it doesn't have the same place today as it did then. So here's one, and we're going to look at three, and I think there's at least five, there may be a few more, where Gaza is mentioned. Judges chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Judah inherited the land of Gaza. It says here, also Judah took Gaza with its territory, and even down in verse 19, so the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now, without getting into all that struggle again with the book of Judges and what the people went through, but this is the promise fulfilled. They have the land, or I guess I should say, well, yes, they should. In, in Joshua, they are conquering. Now we come to Judges, and they have the land. But as is mentioned here in verse number 19, they have failed to drive out these people, and that's going to cause a problem. It's going to be a part of the rest of the story. But we do see here that this, this is mentioned, uh, and one fact about uh, Gaza and this land area is that, first of all, here we see in Judges that Judah inherited this particular part of land. Number two, Samson died in Gaza. Remember Judges chapter 16? Oh, we remember the story, right? You, re you recall what happens in the story and what takes place. But we see through the end of the chapter there uh, that that's where they are going to take him and that this is where he's going to be then uh, whenever he is going to you know, lose his life at this time. We think about him with the Philistines and in Judges chapter 16 and really of course the story uh, of Samson goes further beyond that. Uh, but chapter 16, I've got 28 through 30 here about his death, but look back at verse number 1, chapter 16 verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And then this is beginning that story of him and Delilah. And, and you know, we talked about this not too long ago. But this is where he's going to, to lose his life. Again, very historical. Very kind of important to what's taking place with the nation of Israel during this time in this particular strip of land. Uh, one more here. Do you remember in Acts chapter 8? I know you remember Acts chapter 8. We talk about Acts chapter 8 a lot, don't we? The Ethiopian nobleman is traveling, but do you recall that there at the very beginning it says that an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And this is where he's going to meet this Ethiopian nobleman because that is where he is headed to. He's traveling back to that particular uh, place of land. Now, again, that's not a holy land. That's something else that I wanted to share. I forgot to put in my notes, but it uh, just kind of came back to my memory there. Uh, when we talk about this, you'll hear some people say, well, this is the Holy Lands, right? Or we go, we're going on a trip to the Holy Lands. Uh, I would challenge or just uh, caution against using that terminology. Uh, not that it's, you know, an all-out sinful thing to say, but when you understand sort of like we do when we say, well, we're going to church, Right? And we say, well, we're not going to church because we are the church, that kind of thing. And we say, well, you know, when somebody says that, I'm going to church, I, we know what they mean. And, and they're not trying to be disrespectful. Although the more biblically appropriate thing might be to say, well, we're going to worship. We're going to worship with the church, that kind of thing. Um, the same thing is probably true with this, right? This is not holy land anymore. And even if it was even in the first place, in a sense, it was important. I know some people like to use the term Bible lands, right? That's probably maybe a little more accurate depiction. This is the area in which these events are taking place, and it has historical significance. Now, you say, well, I'm not going there because I think it's holy. 
But there are probably some people who say, well, I want to travel there, and if I don't go there before I die, I'm going to be in trouble because that's the holy land, and I need to you know, put my feet on the holy land. So again, we're trying to strike this balance between you know, being overly simplistic but, but being uh, you know, on the other side of the spectrum there. Well, what's the truth? Well, when somebody says, you know, what's going on in the holy lands right now, I understand what they mean, and, uh, and you know, it's not always the best time to stop somebody and say, well, let me tell you why you're wrong. You know, that's not the time to have that conversation. But we do also have an accurate picture in our mind that it's not holy ground, holy dirt, that we can put our toes in, right? But we are uh, speaking about Bible lands. And these are just some of the things that took place that mention Gaza in the New Testament. All right, let's then get into the idea, number three, of the fact about Israel is that Israel was a part of God's divine plan. There's just no, no way around it, and we shouldn't try to get around it. I mean, it's not, not a way to, reason to be afraid of this conversation. Israel was a part of God's divine plan. It's all over the, the Bible because the Old Testament is Israel in a sense, but the New Testament is still talking about Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul's talking about Israel. So what I'd like to share with you is another uh, brief article or part of an article from Wayne Jackson in the Christian Courier um, because he uses four words and sometimes he does, has a great way of making it where we can remember it or at least write it down you know, very succinctly in an outline. But four words to think about Israel's place in God's divine plan. Number one, selection. Almost 2,000 years before Christ was born, God selected Abraham to be the founder of a new nation. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and this is a passage that we are very familiar with because they are the promises that are made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. When people talk about Israel, do you think they realize that before Genesis 12, there was no Israel, right? Israel wasn't a thing until God makes these promises here. And even then, in one sense, they're not really a thing yet. God has made the promises to Abraham, but it's going to be a little while till we get to the book of Exodus before they become the people of God as they exit out of the land of Egypt. But almost 2,000 years before Christ is born, God makes these promises to Abraham, and it was declared that through his seed would come a nation through which all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Several years later, Abraham's offspring were delivered by God from an era of bondage in Egypt. And they were given a special law. They were given a special system of worship. They were designated from other people in the world. And all of this, though, is doing what? It's pointing the way to Jesus, right? All of it is towards Jesus coming. So they were selected. Secondly, though, they were also tested. For some 1,500 years, I know those are very large round numbers, but for some 1,500 years, God attempted to cultivate the nation of Israel in preparation for the coming of Jesus. All the things we read about in the Old Testament are cultivating the nation of Israel. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. But do you know what God had? He had a problem with people, right? All he's doing to cultivate them to get ready for the Messiah to come, and it's a struggle just like we use this idea of father and child, the nation of Israel, and we talk about us, we are trying to groom our children and train them into what's right. And it's just a struggle because sometimes they don't want to listen. Sometimes they do what's wrong. They're learning about life and trying to live. The same thing is true with the nation of Israel. God has a constant struggle trying to get them to remain faithful. What did they do? 
people. We talked about some of this in our, our biblical history in our Sunday school catch-up. They violated the law. They didn't just violate the law. They grossly violated the law sometimes. They frequently went after strange gods, right, after these idols. They persecuted the prophets that God sent to them. And real quick, look to the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 23. Jeremiah 32 and verse 23, because here's how Jeremiah summarized the history of the Israelite people. Jeremiah 32 and verse 23. And they came in and took possession of it, the land, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. Read it, read the next part. They have done nothing of all that. You ever said that to your kids, right? I mean, you didn't just disobey, you did nothing that I told you to do. You've gone as far as you can. That's what Jeremiah says as a prophet of God, a spokesman for God about the children of Israel. They have done nothing that God had commanded them. So he's been testing them, and when they fail that mark, number three here, there is the rejection. There is the rejection that takes place. Because of their rebellion, and Brother Jackson calls it their accelerating rebellion. Right, just gets worse and worse, more and more. And that is consummated how? Well, their rejection is consummated in the death of Jesus, right? Not just all these other things they did, but they kill and crucify the Son of God. Because of this rebellion and the death of Jesus, God rejected the Hebrew people. See, see the word rejection there? They rejected him, but part of what we're saying is that he ultimately rejects them. Inexcusably, the Jews murdered and rejected their own Messiah. And so God then determines that he's going to do the same to the nation of Israel. Look in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 44. We, we covered parables a while back. I can't remember. It may have been towards the end of the ladies' class. I don't remember if everybody was in here for some of that or not. But we talked about parables. And we emphasized this parable of the wicked vine dressers in Matthew chapter 21. And you see here, and by the way, this is, this is part of that timeline from this morning. Look at Matthew chapter 20 and verse 23. What does Jesus do? He comes into the temple. What happens in Matthew 24, where we, where we were this morning? He exits the temple. And that's when the disciples say, look at the temple. You see the timeline there? I was trying my best to determine with 100% surety if he ever leaves in chapters 21, 22, and 23. I don't think he does. I know it's a lot of words, it's a lot of chapters, but maybe he enters at the end of chapter 20 and he's in there until chapter 24 when he walks out and, and they have this whole discussion from this morning. But in verse 21, or chapter 21, uh, he's, he's telling, telling this parable and the parable has to do with the Jews, you know, about the destruction of Jerusalem, this judgment upon them because of their rejection. And he says in verse 44, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever, whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. God says that he's determined to scatter them as dust, as powder. He is going to re reject them. How does he reject them? Kind of a pop quiz from this morning. He rejects them by sending the Roman armies in A.D. 70, and destroying the temple and Jerusalem that we talked about. Jesus' warnings, you need to flee, all that we said, that's how God rejected them. Now, one other fact that I wanted to share with you, share with you real quickly is that according to the Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, 
in ecclesiastical literature. Anybody got a copy of that on their shelf? And by the way, according to the Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature, Volume 3. There's three of them at least, right? Who's read the first two? According to that, today there is not a single Jew who knows his tribal ancestry. You catch that? And the reason I said I wanted to try to clear that up is that's, that's really tough to say. But according to Josephus, the historian Josephus, when the Roman army invaded, some 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered and thousands were taken into, into captivity, into slavery, and all Jewish records were lost in that moment. Now, that's something that might have taken me a whole month to try to dig into and really find out, right? I start trying to, to do other research and look other places. So that's why I quote that, uh, jokingly, about the name of it. But, but, I mean, seriously, there are some writers who say that there is not one who can claim, make that claim today about his tribal ancestry because of that destruction and how bad it was. The physical nation of Israel is dead. And so, you know, that frames this. Not trying to be anti-Semitic, not trying to be hateful, not just trying to cause arguments, but trying to be biblical. And what we know from history, they were rejected. And so here's uh, the last part. i got a couple other points before we finish up. But the last part of this from Wayne Jackson, selection, testing, rejection, and then replacement. So as a consequence of Israel's rejection of Jesus, God replaced them with spiritual Israel. That's what we're fixing to get into. That's what we're talking about here is spiritual Israel. Today, the Jew, the so-called Jew, is not one who is so physically or even outwardly in the, the depiction of circumcision that's talked about in the New Testament, but inwardly and spiritually. If a person will submit themselves to the gospel plan of salvation that we put on, on the screen almost every service and become a child of God, you can be a part of Israel today. Because that is God's divine plan. Israel was a part of it, but because of their rejection, they were ultimately replaced. And that's sort of, again, the, maybe the simplistic view here in just this, this particular part. Well, another way we might could say it here to kind of begin to wrap this up is that it's not about genes, it's about faith. You might could also say it's not about blood or the bloodline, it's about faith. A couple of New Testament passages. First of all, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Galatians 6, uh, 15 and 16. Paul writes here and he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, there's mention, avails anything. It's not that outward physical sign, but a new creation. We know he talks as well about being a new creature, right? Verse 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I don't think I put it on the screen. Christians today are God's Israel. Christians today are God's Israel. The church... In a sense, Christians could be referred to as Israel today. Not physical. True Israel is not physical, but it is spiritual. And here's, here's the thing. The history of Israel is not in vain. Again, this is not all said trying to be mocking or to cause arguments or, or to make issues out of it. The history of, of Israel is not in vain. A true Israel came out of the physical Israel. 
In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. I want you to turn back there one more time. Romans chapter 9 and verse number 6. Here's a confusing, on the surface, here's a confusing verse. But some people will turn to it and try to make mention of it. He, excuse me, Romans. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. So we read the first five verses, right? Paul says, I love you. You are my brethren. I wish I could be cursed for your sake. Not many of us would do that, right? I mean, I've lived my life. I, I want to go to heaven. And, and even laying down my life for my family, it's hard to say that. But Paul is willing to go that far. But then in verse 6, here's another conjunction, right? Go back to this morning. But... It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Here's the phrase. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Wait a minute. What, what's he, what does that mean? You know, what if I stood up here before you today and I lined my family up and I said, all who are Danleys are not really Danleys. Wait a minute. What are, you, what are you talking about? You know, that doesn't make any sense. What he's saying, of course, is, is that all those who are Israel not all have become true Israel because they have not believed in Christ and submitted to his plan, to his, his plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation. So, yes, in a sense, he can say, not all who are of Israel, excuse me, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. If you're still there in Romans, go down to chapter 10 again. I know we're jumping around through these three chapters, but chapter 10 uh, verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They need the knowledge, and he's going to go further into uh, verse number 4 with talking about Christ. Christ is the end of the law. True Israel involves Christ. And so you, there were some of Israel who believed in Christ and came to the proper belief. So they are now part of true Israel. There are some who are of, we might say old, I don't know if that's fair enough, but old Israel who are not true Israel because they are not believing. They are still re rejecting. And here's the other thing we just don't have time for this afternoon. There's a whole lot of passages in the New Testament that talk about how the law of Moses was built to expire. The law of Moses was built to expire. The old, the old law was built to be done away with. It wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't going to, to do the job. Uh, I was listening to a lesson by Glenn Colley. He was talking about some of this, and he mentioned that he had heard some people talking about trucks, right? Big, I mean, big trucks, uh, just, you know, just regular trucks, like not like big wheels or anything, but just trucks like you would drive, you know, we drive around. He said there's accusations that are made by a lot of people that those trucks are built with defective parts because their money is not in selling you the truck. Their money is in making you come back and pay $8,000 every time you need the truck fixed, right? Now, I mean, that's a, big, that's a big accusation, right? I don't know where you fall on that, but, you know, some people would say, well, that's, that's lying, that's deceitful. Yeah, I mean, so, but there might be some people who would do that for greed, for gain, right? But some people say that kind of thing. But in sort of a bit of a parallel, that is how the law of Moses was. It was built to expire. It was not going to be able to do the job. And so it's not about genes. It's not about blood. Today, it's about faith. To kind of conclude this afternoon, let me share with you Every verse in the Bible, and, and this, these are some of the things that people talk about again, all right? Here's every verse in the Bible that predicted anything about what's happening in Israel. That's them. Here's every verse in the Bible that teaches premillennialism. That's it. Here's every verse in the Bible that teaches that Christ will come to earth and reign a thousand years. 
Here's every verse that teaches a literal seven-year tribulation on earth. Here's every verse, maybe last one, here's every verse that predicts that the Jews will be restored to Palestine. There's just not any. And I know that's being a little facetious, but not trying to be hateful or ugly or all these things, but to simply paint the biblical picture. None of that is found in Scripture. There is no New Testament verse which speaks to the restoration of national Israel and then back to that land. Now, I had this in my notes, and I'm just going to throw it at you real quick. But one thing, if you want to jot down one more passage, Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. One of the things that sometimes comes up is that in Genesis 13, 14 and 15, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, it says that God is promising to give the land to these people forever. Forever. Now, our caution is we don't need to make that more than it is. He says, I will give you for all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. This could have been a lesson in and of itself, this one passage. We don't need to read too much into it because you know what else God says in other places? As long as you do the things that I tell you to do, you shall have this land. So forever does not mean it's yours forever and ever and that there is some type of coming back to the land that's going to be restored. It's sort of that idea of as long as you continue, it's conditional. You know, if I made a contract with Carter, I told Carter I was going to give him $1,000 a month, which I think he would take very willingly. But I said, you've got to do these five things every month. But as long as you do those five things every month, I will give you $1,000 a month forever. When he stops doing them, I'm not going to give him that money anymore, right? Because he's not, filled, he's not fulfilled his end of the bargain. When you see passages like Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15, you've got to understand that, that there is that, there would be that contract. God says, as long as you keep doing it, you know, I'll give it to you forever. But it is conditional, and we see that in a lot of other places that we don't have time for in this lesson. But the idea that this, this was conditional, and they didn't hold up their end of the bargain quite often. And so God took them from the land. They were taken away into captivity, right? Northern captivity, southern captivity, and that happened. And so, but th that's just another quick mention of another place in which people kind of take that passage. They say, oh, wait a minute. This is not, you know, Matthew 24, Genesis 13. National Israel is going to be restored. We need to be supporting Israel. The United States needs to be giving money so that they will not fall. Because if they fall, you know, God's going to, going to punish all of us. Uh, we got to be careful with, with twisting scripture like that and looking at it in that way. And I know it takes some time and it takes some effort and it may take some reading and study and to really think about it. Uh, but it, it makes sense because when you think about God giving them the land forever, well, if he said that and then he took it from them in captivity, is God a contradiction? I don't think he is. I don't think he contradicts himself. So then what could be another understanding of that? Well, as long as you do what you're supposed to do. And he says that in other places. As long as you're obedient, then this land shall be yours. So um, just wanted to throw that in there because it's just one more way in which people start to twist it. And we just need to understand that Israel had a plan. I mean, Israel had a part, excuse me, in God's divine plan. And it helped. It wasn't in vain, but it helped then this true Israel to come about. And the beautiful part this afternoon is that you can be a part of true Israel. You can be. By obeying God's simple plan of salvation. We don't use that phrase today, but it's still true. That when you are obedient, you can be a part of true Israel and be a, a child of God, even as we use that terminology, and be faithful so that you can receive the reward that is prepared. If you're here this afternoon, we're about to sing this song of encouragement. If you've not done that, then we sing to encourage you and we give our... 
uh, suggestion or idea that we would study with you even more about that as soon as possible if it be something that you desire. If you are here and you've done that, brother or sister, but you have wandered away, then why not come back to him? Why not enjoy that safety that is a part uh, of being a part of the family of God? Don't wander away. Don't be lost in sin, but enjoy the blessings being a child of God. Maybe you need to come forward to the front and make it known in a public way that we can pray with you and for you. Uh, maybe it's something else on your heart and mind as we go through many struggles in this life that you'd like to share with your family so that we can pray with you and for you. But either way, we offer God's invitation even now as we stand together.